0: Well, what a great reminder of the gospel this morning, amen? And really, this is what church is all about. It's uh, to remind us every Sunday of the good news of the gospel and how it's impacted our lives, and uh, which should simply get us excited for another week of telling others and sharing with others the gospel and how it can change their life. And so uh, last week... Uh, if you were here, you know I preached a message titled, On a Mission for God, and uh, it was uh, more of a, a, a vision-type message, if you will, a, a desire to uh, remind all of us of why we are here, not just here at this church, but why we're here on this earth. We are, all of us, as believers, on a mission for God, and rather than expecting people to come to us here and visit the church. We need to go to them. And uh, that's what we do during the week, right? We come, we gather together um, to worship. We grow together, ultimately to what? What's the third G? To go. Gather, grow, go. And we need to remember that as church members, uh, that we're not just to be here uh, as a holy huddle and... uh, be content with this and go, this is good. I'm fulfilled for the week. My job is done. I went to church and uh, now I just have to make it through the week and make it back here next Sunday. Uh, No, this is, uh, in some ways, this is practice. Um, The game is Monday through Saturday, right? Uh, When we're out there in the world and uh, seeking to show people Christ and share Christ. And so I want to follow up this morning Uh, With another message um, about the the motivation of that mission. If indeed we are on a mission for God, what should motivate us? What, what, What should drive us in that mission? And so I've titled this message, A Mission of Compassion. And it's based on Matthew chapter 9, verses 35 through chapter 10, verse 5. And I want to invite you to take your Bibles and turn there. Matthew chapter 9, starting in verse 35. Matthew records, Jesus was going through all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. Seeing the people, he felt compassion for them because they were distressed and dispirited like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Therefore, beseech the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest. Father, we're thankful for your word. Uh, We're thankful for your spirit. We pray that your spirit would now take your word and apply it. To our hearts, Lord, help us to understand exactly what Jesus was saying here and um, how it applies to each of our lives specifically. Lord, that we would feel what God feels, what you feel. We would see what you see when it comes to those lost people uh, that you put us around and that you put around us throughout the week. Lord, that we would see them through your eyes, and that would be what motivates us in our mission for you. pray this in Jesus' name, amen. I want to begin by reading a story for you that I came across years ago, and I've never forgotten it ever since I read it the first time. It's a story of a life-saving station. It goes like this. On a dangerous seacoast where shipwrecks often occur, there was once a little life saving station. The building was just a hut and there was only one boat, but the few devoted members kept a constant watch over the sea. With no thought for their safety, they went out day and night, tirelessly rescuing the lost. Many lives were saved, and so the station became famous. Some of those who were saved, along with others in the surrounding area, wanted to become associated with the station. They gave of their time, money, and effort for the support of its work. New boats were bought, new crews were trained, and the life-saving station grew. Some of the members were unhappy that the building was so crude and poorly equipped. They felt a more comfortable place should be provided, so they replaced the emergency cots and beds and put better furniture in a new, larger building. Now, the life-saving station became a popular gathering, gathering place for its members, They decorated it exquisitely because they used it as a sort of club. Few members were now interested in going to sea on life saving missions, so they hired lifeboat crews to do the work. The life saving motif still prevailed in the club's decorations, and there was a liturgical lifeboat in the room where club initiations were held. About this time, a large ship was wrecked off the coast, and the hired crews brought the loads of cold, wet, half drowned people. They were dirty. They were sick, and the beautiful new club was considerably messed up. So, the property committee immediately had a shower house built outside the club where the shipwrecked victims could be cleaned up before coming inside. At the next meeting, there was a split in the club membership. Most of the members wanted to stop the life saving activity because they thought it was a hindrance and unpleasant to the normal social life of the club. Some members insisted that life-saving was their primary purpose and pointed out that they were still a life-saving station after all. Well, they were finally voted down and told that if they wanted to save the lives of various kinds of people shipwrecked in those waters, they could begin their own life-saving station down the coast, which they did. As the years went by, the new station experienced the same changes that occurred in the old one. It evolved into a club and another life-saving station was founded. History continued to repeat itself, and if you visit that coast today, you'll find a number of exclusive clubs along the shore. Shipwrecks are still frequent, but most of the people drown. I think this is a tragic but true tale of the natural progression that takes place in many churches. They start out with the right focus but over time they lose sight of their primary purpose. It's very easy for a church to lose sight of its mission. From day one, as I mentioned last week, the mission of our church has been this. We exist to glorify God by proclaiming and living his word so that people will come to know Jesus Christ and grow to become like him. We've got that On the wall as you walk in, we've got that in the bulletin that's in in the front of your Bible. We've got that on our website. Again, just trying to keep that in front of all of us at all times. That is our mission statement, which is based on the Great Commission, Matthew chapter 28. Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you even to the end of the age. This is the purpose of the church. This is what Christ wants us to do. This is what Christ commands us to do. Again, to gather, to grow, ultimately to go. I think this is something that we can't talk about enough because I think it's easy to fall prey to the thinking that being a part of a church is, is really just singing praises to God, like we've done this morning, or studying um, God's word and understanding his word like we're doing now and fellowshipping together and ministering to, uh, caring for other followers of Christ. But I would suggest to you that if these things were the primary purpose of the church, then God would have simply taken us to heaven the moment that we got saved. Why? Because we can do all of these things better in heaven. I think there's one main reason why god keeps us here on earth it's the same reason why he sent his son here to this earth to seek and to save what that which was lost and it was jesus who said to his disciples as the father has sent me i also what we learned this last week in john chapter 20 verse 20 i also send you we are a sent community and as Christ's followers, we must be committed to, above all else, seeking and saving the lost. And when a church loses sight of this mission, it becomes self absorbed and ingrown and oftentimes critical and apathetic and stagnant. Instead of being a rescue mission, where the mindset of its members is to leave the comfort and the safety inside the four walls of the church and go out into the world and build relationships with the lost people in, their, in our homes, in our neighborhoods, and at, the, at our workplaces, at our schools, at, at the gyms that we work at, at the coffee shops we hang out in, at the restaurants we frequent, at the stores that we shop in, right? If we don't do this, a church can develop into a self-righteous subculture that condemns the lost rather than has compassion on the lost. And I ask you to consider just in your own heart, when you think about lost people, when you think about unbelievers that you know, whether it's in your family or uh, in your neighborhood, at your work, at your school, uh, the people you rub shoulders with, what is in your heart? Is it more condemnation compassion. See, I think one of the reasons, if not the main reason, why entire churches and individual Christians often fail in fulfilling the Great Commission is we don't share God's heart for the lost. The Great Commission is based on God's great compassion. And it's been said that if you want to know what God is like, look at Jesus. And in this passage, we have an opportunity to look at Jesus. And we see here Jesus' great compassion for the lost. I like to refer to this passage as the great compassion. You've got the great commission, Matthew 28, right? Most of us are familiar with the, the great commission. This is when Jesus gave the final orders to his disciples to carry on his mission to seek and to save the lost. But this passage, uh, the great compassion, is when Jesus gave the first orders to his disciples to join him in the mission to seek and to save the lost. And so the great commission is based on and motivated by the great compassion of Christ. Now this passage here in Mark chapter 9, Mark's a major transition in Jesus' ministry. And we're just kind of parachuting down here uh, in the middle of Matthew, and so we need to get the context. Jesus, um, up to this point, had been performing all sorts of miracles in order to prove his divine authority, his divine power, that he truly was the Son of God. It says in verse 35, Jesus was going through all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness, and up until this point, the disciples were just kind of going along for the ride, that they were merely spectators, that they were following Jesus around, watching him do all the work. He was working all alone in this massive harvest of lost souls. And after all he had seen, after all he'd experienced, his heart was about to, to burst. And so it was time to get the disciples involved in. The harvest, to get them out of the stands and into the game. You may have heard the the classic line from the renowned professor from Dallas Theological Seminary, Seminary, um, Howard Hendricks. He said this, the church is like a football game. There are 22 men on the field badly in need of rest, and 22,000 people in the stands badly in need of exercise. Unfortunately, that's a description of a lot of churches, right? you got a few people on the field doing the work and the rest of the people are just kind of sitting around watching. And so in order to motivate his disciples to come and work alongside him in in harvesting souls, he shared with them his passion for the lost and his plan to reach the lost. And so that's what we're going to see this morning from this passage. We're going to see, first of all, Jesus' passion to reach the lost and then secondly, Jesus' plan to reach the lost. Notice, first of all, in his passion to reach the lost, we see his compassion. His compassion. Verse 36, seeing the people, he felt compassion for them. The word there in the original language is, is an interesting word. It's splachna. Just, just, I just like saying that. It's just like a, just a good Greek word. It literally means intestines or bowels not to get gross here, but the point is that this term was used in the Old Testament to describe the deepest part of a person. This was the depth of their emotions. This was the responder, the reactor part of us. This was the heart. And so, in other words, Jesus responded to all that he saw, all that he experienced with great pity. His heart was grieved, and his natural reaction was, was wanting to help these lost people. In Matthew chapter 14, verse 14, it says a similar thing. When he went ashore, he saw a large crowd and he felt compassion for them and healed their sick. Chapter 15, verse 32, and Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I feel compassion for the people because they have remained with me now three days and have nothing to eat, and I do not want to send them away hungry for they may faint on the way. This was before the feeding of the 4,000. And then over in Luke chapter 19, Luke chapter 19, we even see Jesus weeping, shedding tears for lost people. In Luke chapter 19, as he's entering Uh, Jerusalem, it says this in Luke 19 verse 41, when he approached Jerusalem, he saw the city and wept over it. There's actually a church built on the slope of the Mount of Olives in Jerusalem that we stopped at and spent some time in the last time we visited Israel as a a church, and uh, it's called the Church of the Teardrop. And it's a very picturesque setting, and they have built this church with a window. If you sit in the church and you look out the window in the front, it'd be like a window right here, uh, and it looks over the Temple Mount and the Jerusalem. And it's just a touching place to consider. This is where Jesus was approaching Jerusalem, and as he was thinking about what was about to happen that the nation of Israel was going to reject him as their Messiah, he wept, saying, If you had known in this day, even you, the things which make for peace, but now they have been hidden from your eyes, for the days will come upon you when your enemies will throw up a barricade against you and surround you and hem you in on every side, and they will level you to the ground and your children within you, and they will not leave in you one stone upon another because you did not recognize the time of your visitation. In other words, the consequence, the judgment of God for them rejecting their Messiah was the destruction of Jerusalem by by Rome. The point being is when's the last time you shed a tear over an unbeliever you know? Have you ever wept over lost people at work? at your school, in your neighborhood. The question is, why did his heart break like this? Well, notice back in Matthew 9, it says, seeing the people, he felt compassion for them because they were distressed and dispirited like sheep without a shepherd. That word distressed literally means flayed or skinned. They were harassed, they were... Troubled, They were battered. They were bruised. So they were distressed. They were dispirited or downcast. And literally, it's the idea of being thrown down flat on your face as from drunkenness or a mortal wound, that they've, they've been mortally wounded. They're going to die if they don't get help. And then, of course, this beautiful expression, like sheep without a shepherd. Jesus saw them as, as helpless sheep, no one to lead them, no one to protect them, no one to feed them, no one to care for them, no one to watch over them. And I think even more graphically, Christ saw people as lost sheep headed for the slaughter. And typically, right, animals that are heading for the slaughter, they have no clue where they're headed. They're just following the guy in front of them, right, down the chute to get their th- throat slit. And that's, I think, a good description of a lot of people in the world. They, they have no clue wh- what's, where they're headed. They're just following the guy in front of them, thinking, hey, there's a lot of us going in this direction. I must be okay. But what does the Bible say? Broad is the road that leads to where? Destruction, but narrow is the road that leads to life. So Jesus looked past the facades, he looked past the fronts that people put, and he saw people for who they really were and for where they were really going. He saw people as helplessly lost in sin and hopelessly bound for hell. Do we see people that way? Or is this just my classmate? Is this just my coworker? Is this just my neighbor? Is this just my son or my daughter or my parent? Is this the barista at the Starbucks that's handing me my co- coffee through the window? How are we seeing these people? There's a poem written called Looking Through His Eyes. It goes like this. Let me see this world, dear Lord, as though I were looking through your eyes, a world of men and women who don't want you, Lord, but a world for which you died. Let me kneel with you in the garden, blur my eyes with tears of agony, for if once I could see this world the way you see, I just know I'd serve you more faithfully. Let me see the world, dear Lord, through your eyes. When men mocked your holy name, when they beat you and spat upon you, Lord, let me love them as you love them just the same. Let me stand high above my petty problems and grieve for men hellbound eternally. For if once I could see this world the way you see, I just know I'd serve you more faithfully. Again, what do you see? When you look around at the unbelievers that God has put around you, put you around. I'll never forget one of the first times I went to India and I've lost track literally of how many times I've had the privilege of going there. I think it's close to 10 now, but one of the first times that I went there years ago, um, I'll never forget how stifled I felt how claustrophobic I felt, uh, how oppressed I felt, not just spiritually, but just physically by just the mass of humanity just jam-packed into this country. And, and everywhere you turn, there was just masses of people everywhere. And, and, and I was just really having a hard time taking it all in. And frankly, I wanted to get out of there as soon as I could. I wasn't dealing with it very well, and I didn't like the way it smelled, I didn't like the way it looked, I didn't like the way it felt, um, there, there was nothing I liked about it. And I'll never forget, I was riding on the back of uh, Chris Williams' scooter, this is Sammy's dad, Sammy is one of the missionaries we support there, um, and I was riding on the back of his scooter, and I'm just sitting back there, and we're just cruising through you know, these streets in, in, in Pune, India, and and we came up to this This four-way stop. And if you've ever been in a third world country, you may have experienced something like this. You know, all the, you know, it's like everybody's stopped at this four-way intersection. Everybody's revving their engines. And there's, there's all this exhaust everywhere. And and these people are like wall-to-wall people. Like, it's right. Really, someone's trying to get the whole shot, you know. It's like the motocross thing's going to go down. And everybody's going to go together into this intersection. And it's going to be chaos. And I'm just I'm just sitting, just looking around. And I'm smelling all these weird smells. And I'm hearing all these weird sounds. And, and I'm just going, Lord, what am I doing here? And, and, uh. And, and I'm like, like, there's a scooter here and another guy right here. And we're like, like right here in each other. And I'm like, going, what is going on? And and I'll never forget Chris leaned back and he said, Ken, look around this intersection. Probably everyone in this intersection is gonna go to hell. I'm gonna talk about an eye opener. That was not how I was seeing that situation. <laughs> But he had the heart of God. He had the heart of a missionary, a man on a mission for God. That probably the majority of these people are all Hindus. They're worshiping false gods, 33 million of them. And that's why I'm here, so I can tell them about the one true God and his son, Jesus Christ. Do you see what Jesus sees? Do you feel what Jesus feels? Turn over to John chapter 4. We're familiar with this. Story of the woman at the well. And uh, by the way, this is a great case study in relationship evangelism. Uh, in other words, Jesus showed up in Samaria. He had a divine appointment with a woman who was coming there to draw water. She was an immoral woman, but he engaged her in conversation. And before you know it, she had repented of her sin and placed her faith in him as her Messiah. And uh, as, as you know, um, she dropped her water pot and ran back to her city. At the same time, the disciples were coming back. While all this was going on, the disciples were out buying lunch. They were, they were at the grocery store, right, getting something to eat. And, uh, and so they came back. And notice, this is John chapter 4, verse 35. Jesus engages the disciples because they... They say, oh, here, have you eaten? And he said, "Uh, uh, no, I have food to eat that you do not know about. And they're like, well, did somebody already bring him something? Um, And he said, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. But notice verse 35. Do not say, do you not say, there are yet four months, and then comes the harvest? Behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes and look on the fields. They're white for harvest. Already he who reaps is receiving wages and is gathering fruit for life eternal so that he who sows and he who reaps may rejoice together. For in this case, the saying is true. One sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you have not labored. Others have labored and you have entered into their labor. Well, what was Jesus talking about here? Well, what does this lift up your eyes and look? Was he pointing to, to some fields around? I don't, I don't think so look back at verse 28. So the woman left her water pot and went into the city and said to the men, come, see a man who told me all the things that I have done. This is not the Christ, is it? They went out of the city and were coming to him. And so here the disciples were coming back from that very city, the very same city that they had done their, 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 their errands in apparently not engaging anyone with the truth of the gospel. And Jesus talks to one woman at the well, and she runs back into town and starts telling everybody about Jesus. And they, it piques their interest, and they all come. The whole city starts walking out, coming out to the well. And, and Jesus is saying, hey, guys, look. Look. Look at all these people. The fields are white unto harvest. And sadly, I think some of us tend to be more like the disciples, right? That we got our blinders on and we're just getting in and out of the stores and getting in and out of the class and getting in and out of work and, and, and we're just doing our thing and we're not lifting up our eyes and looking to see all the divine appointments around us and oh, that we would be like this woman. You say, well, I don't, know. I don't know how to witness. I don't know how to tell. I don't know... She was a brand new believer, a baby Christian. And what did she do? She just showed up and and said, Hey, I just met a guy that told me all about my life. Is it possible that he could be the Messiah, the one we've been waiting for? She just shared her testimony, and it had a dramatic impact in the life of her community, in her city. And so we see this compassion that Jesus had. But it wasn't just emotion. It wasn't just a feeling. It was more than that. It actually was a compulsion. So Jesus had compassion, but there was also a compulsion here. Notice verse 37, that he said to his disciples... The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Therefore, beseech the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest. And, and so here in verse 37, we see this disheartening disproportion. The, the things are way out of balance here. There's <clears throat> plenty of distressed and downcast people who needed to hear the gospel, but there wasn't enough people to tell them. And the picture that... that, that comes into my mind here when he says that the, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. I get this picture of this massive orchard with tons of fruit trees and the, they're, they're just laid, these trees are laden with fruit and, and they're, they're just ready to be picked, but there's not enough workers to pick it all. And so it falls off the tree and it rots. And so Not only do we see a disheartening disproportion, we see this divine desperation. What does he say? Therefore, verse 38, beseech the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest. What does it mean to beseech the Lord? It means to pray, to plead with him, to beg God to raise up and to send out more workers. A.B. Simpson, who was the founder of the Christian Missionary Alliance, uh, an evangelical denomination. Some of you may have been a part of a Christian Missionary Alliance church at one point uh, in your Christian life. It's a a good denomination, and I appreciate them and respect them a lot. They have a huge emphasis on, on global missions, global evangelism and uh, it said that A.B. Simpson was found early one morning. Somebody was looking for him, and they found him weeping in prayer as he clutched a globe. He was just praying over this globe of the earth, begging the Lord to send out workers into the harvest. Why do you think that Jesus told his disciples to pray this prayer. He says, hey guys, you need to beg God, the God of the harvest, to send out workers into his harvest. It's his harvest. But you need to beg him, plead with him, pray to him that he would send out workers into his harvest. I think the reason why he told him to pray that prayer is because he was setting them up. Little did they know that they were going to be the answer to their own prayers. It's not enough just to pray. Anyone can genuinely and sincerely pray to God to send workers into the fields. But if that is a true heart prayer, then you need to also be willing to be one of them, right? I remember hearing about Martin Luther's friend, who we all know about Martin Luther, right? And, and Martin Luther was just a, 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 great, a man greatly used of the Lord, a powerful preacher and an evangelist. And he was going around stirring up the, the Protestant Reformation. And, and his buddy said, listen, you go, you go out, you minister, and I'm going to stay home on my knees, and I'm going to pray for you. And that was their partnership. You preach, I pray. Well, eventually... Praying wasn't enough for that guy, because Luther would come back and tell him what the Lord was doing, and he realized, you know what, I just can't stay here in my closet and pray. I got to get out there with you, side by side, let's do this together. And so Jesus was essentially saying to his disciples, listen, you've you've been watching long enough, you've been praying long enough, it's time for you to get involved in the work of the harvest. They were his plan to reach the lost. And we know that because of the context. Notice chapter 10. Jesus summoned his 12 disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. Now the names of the 12 apostles are these. The first Simon, who's called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, and James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector, James, the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus, Simon the zealot, and Judas Iscariot, the one who betrayed him. These 12 Jesus sent out. Question. If you had a message so great that you wanted the entire world to hear it, what would be the best way of communicating that to some six billion people plus now, right? What would be your plan? Radio, TV, internet, Facebook, social media, right? I doubt, I doubt today that any of us would ever consider recruiting a small group of people and sharing with them the message and then counting on them to tell the rest of the world. I mean, to those of us living in the, the age of social media, which has really created a global village, if you will, that seems like a very simplistic, even stupid way to communicate a message to the entire world. It would require way too much work, too much time, and besides, people are unreliable, and it would be highly unlikely for it to work effectively, and yet that's the plan that Jesus chose. You think about all the different ways that God could have communicated the gospel, right? He has all the power in the universe at his command. He could have, you could have done anything he wanted to reach the lost people. I mean, he could have just had angels floating around the heavens, right, in the sky for the last 2,000 years, <laughs> proclaiming the gospel. He could, have, he could have created trees with speakers, Right? They're just constantly, you know, kind of in a big brother kind of era, just constantly talking to us and saying what he wanted us to hear. I mean, he could have used elaborate programs, huge crusades, but that's not what he did. He selected a group of men that he reproduced himself into so they could carry on the mission of harvesting souls after he went back to heaven. And obviously this required him to spend a lot of time training and equipping these guys for the task. In fact, I don't know if you realize this, that Jesus spent the majority of his ministry years, those three years of ministry, public ministry, preparing these men rather than preaching to the masses. He concentrated his efforts on a few in order to reach the many. And so what may appear to us to be a very slow tedious, ineffective process turned out to be extremely effective. And this small, motley crew of untrained, uneducated men from an obscure part of the world sparked a revolution that spread like wildfire. And 2,000 years later, there are Christians meeting together in churches all over the world today. And you're one of them. I'm one of them. How'd that happen? How did we get to be sitting here this morning as followers of Jesus Christ? I want to show you. And I've done this before, and some of you may remember this, but I personally love this visual illustration of how it works. This is the plan. So I need two guys to help me. So Gerald... I, I, you can just stand right there. You're good. I need you to help me. And then Jonathan, can I get you to come up here? Thanks for cooking all that brisket, by the way, bro. I know you you still smell like smoke, I think. I just, I'm just kidding. No. Anyway, so what we're going to do here, we're going we're gonna to demonstrate how the process of multiplication works, okay? Because this is the process that Jesus used. This, is what he, this was what he was banking on, Okay? So what we're going to do, these two guys are disciples of Jesus, they're followers of Christ, and they're going to go out and they're going to build relationships with people in the community. They're going to lead them to Christ and they're going to bring them back to church, okay? So go ahead, guys, go build a relationship with someone, lead them to Christ and bring them back to church. Just bring them up here. Yeah, bring them on up with you. Just bring them on up. All right, there you go. All right. Now this this is the difference, okay? We're going to have... Um, Jonathan, you go ahead and, and, and build another relationship and uh, lead him to Christ and bring him to church. Gerald, you're going to disciple Tom. You're going to teach him how to fish as well. He's going to know how to share the gospel and build relationships. So guess what? Both, here he is. You're going to disciple him right there. All right? So now both of you guys go out and build relationship, right? Build relationship, lead someone to Christ, and bring them to church. Okay? Okay, you got to stay up there. Not you. Where are you going, man? You're not being discipled, man. You can't go anywhere. Okay, so, so Jonathan's going to go out again, and he's going to build a relationship, lead someone to Christ, and bring them to church. And again, now, these guys, uh, Jason and, and Matt, are also being discipled to know how to share the gospel. And so all four of you guys go out and build a relationship with a lost person and uh, lead them to Christ and bring them to church. And uh, yeah, Jonathan, good job, man. You're just winning people to Jesus over here. So you just keep going out there um, and building relationships with people, leading them to Christ. Okay, now we got these folks over here who are being led to Christ, but they're being discipled in how to share the gospel with others, build relationships, right? Lead people to Christ. And so you all go out and build relationship with somebody in the, tr- in the world. Go ahead. Go build someone, build a relationship with someone, lead them to Christ and bring them to church. Jonathan's working hard over here all by himself. That's right. This is uh... okay. Hold off, Jonathan. You're just like getting after it here, man. Just relax, bro. He's an evangelist, man. He's got to get to evangelism. All right. So, so again, Jonathan is—he's being faithful, right? People are getting saved over there, man. What's happening? So here's Jonathan, okay, he's working hard, man, he's being a faithful evangelist, he's telling people about Jesus, he's bringing them to church, okay, Jonathan, go ahead, go find somebody else, but look at all these people that are not only just coming to Christ, but they're being, they're growing in Christ, and they're learning how to build relationships, and how to share Christ with others, and bringing them to church, so you guys all go build a relationship with someone, and uh, lead them to Christ, and bring them to church, how's it going over there, Jonathan? He's getting tired. Okay. Are you, are you, getting, are you getting the point here? Oh, look at all this whole rose coming to the Lord here. Okay. So, hey. Good job, right? Praise God. People coming to know the Lord, Jonathan. Way to be faithful to tell others about Christ. But um, hey, whoa, what's God doing over here, right? People are not only coming to Christ, but they're growing in Christ. They're being discipled and trained and equipped how to share the gospel with others. And what's happening? We've got addition, just pure addition over here, adding one at a time. What do we got over here? Multiplication, right? As a result of reproduction, right? Right? People are reproducing themselves. Gerald reproduced himself in the life of someone else who reproduced themselves in the life of someone else who reproduced their life of somebody else. And look what happens in the process of multiplication. You guys can sit down. Thank you very much. Again, I love that visual image of how the process of multiplication combined obviously with the power of the Holy Spirit achieves amazing results. I mean, that's the book of Acts. What we just witnessed over here, that's the book of Acts. it's the historical record of the miraculous acts of the holy spirit performed in and through christ's apostles to fulfill the great commission and as you read through the book of acts you see these signposts along the road highlighting the growth and expansion of the church and every few chapters uh, it says and and more were added to the church 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 And it wasn't people moving from Corinth to to Philippi or from Philippi to Thessalonica. It was people getting saved. And I think if we're faithful and obedient to the Great Commission and to discipleship, making disciples, not just making converts, but making disciples of Jesus Christ, the same thing should be written about our church. And the same thing could be written about the impact that our church makes on our community. What is the, the ultimate climax of this, these signposts throughout Acts is Acts 17, 6. These men who have turned what? The world upside down or right side up as some people say. The point is they were known all over the place. They had rocked the known world at the time with the gospel of Jesus Christ. The thing I find most interesting about the disciples is they weren't the kind of guys that you'd naturally expect to be world changers. And I love this verse in Acts 4.13. It says, Now as they observed the confidence of Peter and John and understood that they were uneducated and untrained men they were amazed and began to recognize them as having been with Jesus. All that verse is saying is, as they were seeing these guys who were, you know, these untrained, uneducated fishermen, tax collectors, and in many ways riffraff of, of society, um, who were held up in the upper room, you know, shaken in their boots. Now they were these bold, confident witnesses for Christ, And they were amazed, and they were like, wait a minute, we know these guys. These were the guys that were with Jesus. These were his disciples. The point is, as these men spent time with Jesus, their lives were transformed. And as a result, they transformed the world. We shouldn't expect that we can just go out of here and go gangbusters for Jesus, and everything's going to, you know... Change. No, we need to spend time with Jesus. We need, we need Christ to transform our lives, right? Because God's plan is change people. Change people are God's plan for changing the world. One of my favorite books is called The Master Plan of Evangelism by Robert Coleman. Some of you, I'm sure, have read that classic little work. In it, he tells a hypothetical story, but I find it interesting. It's a conversation between Jesus and Gabriel, the archangel. It says, uh, this is a story that someone imagined Jesus returning to heaven and meeting the archangel Gabriel. So this is Jesus after his life and death and resurrection and his ascension, he gets back to heaven and he he bumps into the archangel Gabriel. And Gabriel was very interested to know what the Lord had been doing while he was on earth. Jesus explained to him how he had died on the cross to save men from their sins and had been raised back to life by God's power and had now returned to heaven to sit at God's right hand and intercede for those who he had gone to earth to save. He concluded by telling Gabriel how he wanted the entire world to hear about what he had done for them so they could be forgiven for their sin. And Gabriel asked, well, what's your plan for accomplishing this? Jesus said, I've left the message in the hands of 11 men and I'm trusting them to spread it everywhere. Gabriel was surprised and he exclaimed, 11 men? What if they fail? Jesus responded, I have no other plan. We are God's plan. You are God's plan. I am God's plan. This church is God's plan for spreading the gospel to the ends of the earth. And as it's been said, the, the light that shines the farthest shines the brightest where? At home here in our local community. Let me close with a quote from one of my favorite authors, Horatius Bonar. He wrote a book called Words to Winners of Souls. Very appropriate as we close today. He said this, quote, The fields are vast, the grain whitens, the harvest waves, and through grace we shall go forth with our sickles never to rest Till we shall lie down where the Lamb himself shall lead us, by the living fountains of water, where God shall wipe off the sweat of toil from our weary foreheads and dry up all the tears of earth from our weeping eyes. Some of us are young and fresh. Many days may yet be in the providence of God before us. These must be days of strenuous, ceaseless persevering. And if God bless us, successful toil, we shall labor In the harvest, till we are worn out and laid to rest. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we're so grateful for this undeserved privilege, first of all, of knowing you, having a relationship with you through your Son, Jesus Christ. But then on top of that, you choosing to use us, to make us your plan for reaching other lost people. Lord, I pray that you would cause this truth to sink deep into our hearts, that while you're sovereign over salvation, you have given us the responsibility, the privilege, and you're counting on us to be faithful witnesses to the lost people around us. Lord, would you lift up our eyes? Would you get our eyes off ourself? Would you get our eyes off of all of our stuff and all of our things that we need to do, all of our tasks, and help us to see the people around us like you see them, that you would give us a compassion, a burden, a brokenheartedness for them. Lord, that we would see them as sheep without a shepherd, as sheep headed blindly, as it were, ignorantly to the slaughter, and that we would have a desire to rescue them with the hope of the gospel. And so, Lord, would you just um, just give us a different perspective, give us a different mindset as individuals and as a church. And Lord, that we would um, always be that lighthouse that life-saving station that you intended us to be. Pray we never lose sight of that. And Lord, whether or not we see others come to Christ in this community, that's ultimately up to you. And we'll leave the results to you. But uh, Lord, we just know that we want to be more faithful to engage um, people Not just with truth, but with grace and truth. And that we would speak the truth in love to them. Lord, forgive us for having a a heart of condemnation at times. When we consider unbelievers and what they do and how they think and how they act and the way they live... Lord, give us compassion for them. Give us your heart for the loss we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, listen, we've got a couple of our elders available to um, meet any needs you might have today. So please come and they're here to talk with you, pray with you, however we can best minister to you. Again, if you're visiting, thanks so much for being here. We invite you to stop by our welcome desk as you leave and uh, love to meet you out there. And um, you guys have an awesome week. Look forward to hearing stories of how the Lord is answering our prayers to give us opportunities to share Christ every day. And uh, so be talking it up, telling it to share stories, testimonies of how the Lord's using you to build relationships with unbelievers in our community. Have a great week.